So Jesus, ask that you would please speak to us through your word and help us live out of it. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, I want to welcome all of those here, those of you watching on the podcast. You know, Stanford won this week. I got to go to the Husky game yesterday. I'm in a good mood. <laughs> the Hawks can just do it today, then it'll just be great. Um, three weeks ago, someone in my, a guy in my men's fraternity small group told me about a way to lift weights that gets you better results, and he called it pre-fatiguing the muscle. Doesn't that sound awesome? And the way it works is you start with a weight that you can lift 15 times, and then 20 seconds later, you move the weight to a higher weight that you can only lift 12 times, and then you move it to a higher weight that you can only lift 8 times, and then you go backwards, 8, 12, 15, and then by that time, your arms don't work anymore. And I have been sore for three straight weeks, and I love that feeling. I love, you know why? It tells me I'm getting huge. You guys are going to be in awe, right, if I don't die first, right? Some of you are like, that pain isn't telling you you're getting huge, it's telling you you're getting old, Dudley. My friend demonstrated what I'm going to call in this sermon a severe mercy. He wants the best for me, and to prove it, he put me in pain. Because sometimes in order for something to grow, like a muscle or a heart or our faith, it needs to be worked. And that's what I think is happening in this very difficult, one of the most difficult in the New Testament stories that we read today, where a foreign woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter, and Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Okay, anyone here think that Jesus might be just a little bit rude in this? Now, I thought about not preaching on this text because it's so hard, uh, but the point of this series is to look at the hard sayings of Jesus, so I'm going to preach on it. I did, however, strategically schedule it for a Sunday when the Seahawks were playing in the morning, because you guys are the faithful, right? Like, you can handle this text. I think what's happening here is Jesus is giving a severe mercy, a, a workout designed to expand two things. First, the disciples' hearts. Second, this woman's understanding of Jesus' power and the joy that flows from that. But let me start by asking this question. I wonder, do you ever feel like this Canaanite woman might have? That you're facing some health or financial or relationship issue and Jesus seems silent? Or maybe like he's just blowing you off. Or maybe you just don't experience him and he doesn't seem real to you. And and you wonder if Jesus is real, then where's this connection with him? Or where's the adventure he promises? This story speaks to that. So first, give me a few minutes to kind of do a little teaching around the text and its context. And this part of the sermon is not going to have a lot of stories or humor. Some of you are like, your sermons never have humor, just it's what's different. And then I'm going to talk about how this can expand our hearts and expand our connection with Jesus, which gives us more joy. There are a couple approaches Bible commentators have to this story, including things like Jesus was having a bad day, so he snaps at this woman. Oh, please. People get a PhD to do that sort of thing. I'm going to give you the view that I think fits best with the context of this story. And that is that Jesus knows that people don't learn very well through lectures or, for, or through sermons, which makes me wonder why I do this, but moving ahead with that, he knows that sermons don't teach anything. Experience is what makes people really learn. And he's giving these disciples and this woman an experience to expand their hearts in connection with him. So as a foreigner, this woman is reaching across two barriers, gender and race. In Jesus' day, men did not talk to women in public, and they considered non-Jews, which is what she is, so unclean that if they touched one, they had to go bathe. And Jesus just seems to slam the door in her face. And it's shocking because it's so out of character for Jesus. He has healed Gentiles in other places. 
Women were part of his ministry. He talks to them in public like the Samaritan woman at the well, scandalizing and shocking and offending his disciples because women and foreigners were despised. So his response is out of character for him. It is not, however, out of character for his culture or for his disciples. And that's the point. He's responding to her as they would to reveal to them the ugliness of their hearts. And I think it's the context of this story that actually makes this clear. Because immediately before this, Jesus has a long discussion with the religious leaders about what makes a person clean or unclean. And he states categorically, it's not about what you know, sort of class you were born into. It's not about religious tradition. Clean and unclean is a matter of your heart. And the very next thing he does is he goes to this region called Tyre and Sidon, which is a foreign country that Jews would have considered basically pagan land, sort of like Disneyland, only different. You know, super sinful, Las Vegas on steroids. And Jesus goes there because that's what Jesus does. When we are sinful and messing up, he does not avoid us. He reaches out to us. And then this woman asks him to heal her daughter. And Jesus is silent, uncharacteristic for him, culturally appropriate for his day, since men didn't talk to women. And the disciples are almost relieved, right? Like none of this woman at the well stuff. Finally, he's behaving like he should behave, right? And they say, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. I just love that. Ministry is great, Jesus, except for the people. Get rid of her. (laughs) See, their desire to be sort of culturally fit in exposes their, their hard hearts. They think she's unclean for being a foreigner and a woman. But Jesus, just verses earlier, has finished saying that those things don't make you unclean. It's amazing, actually, they can't connect these two things. Their obtuseness is actually sort of epic here. The other day, my daughter asked my wife, why does daddy keep putting his shoes on my shelf in the shoe rack? And my wife said, ask him. He won't won't even know that each of us has our own shelf on the rack. Sure enough, she was right. For 10 years, 10 years, they have all known that we each have our own shelf on the shoe rack except for me. I have been left in the dark, although I was informed about it. So I've been told. That's kind of the disciples here. Epic obtuseness. So Jesus doesn't respond, but this woman doesn't leave because she believes that Jesus is compassionate. And he's done three things. He's given her three reasons to believe he's compassionate. One, he's in her country in the first place. Two, he did not say a direct no. Three, he didn't send her away as everyone else would have. See, faith believes that Jesus is good even when our circumstances aren't so sure of that. But it's not blind faith. She has reasons to trust that he is good. We have reasons to trust that Jesus is good. Chiefly, he loved us enough to die for us. So she persists. And then Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Harsh, right? Except what's going on here is Jesus is just verbalizing his culture's theology, the disciples' theology. He doesn't lecture them about their negative attitude. He just tried that verses earlier, and it didn't work. And he knows that experience is a more powerful teacher, so he voices what's in their hearts, basically saying, of course I'll send her away. I'll get rid of her. I'm sent to Israel, God's favorite. We don't have time for Gentile female riffraff like this. Good call, guys. I'll send her away. You all right with that? You all right with listening to her daughter's Cries of agony? Well, I just send her away. Is that what you're thinking, guys? Is this working for you? See, it's one thing to have certain attitudes. It's another to have them voiced out loud, isn't it? But as he does that, he's also showing compassion for this woman. 
Because the word he uses for dog is the diminutive word for dog, sort of like puppy, something a child might keep as a pet in the home. Now, Jews had called Gentiles dog for centuries, but, but, but not this kind of dog. It was always a stray or a scavenger dog, never house dogs. And this would have challenged the disciples. They would have been like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Why, 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 that? why is the dog in the house? They don't belong there. Who let the dogs in? Five of you got that. That's great. See, that was subtle artistry. That was really, anyway. No. Everyone under 30 is like, what? What's that about? He uses the word dog to voice the, the, the disciples' theology, but he softens it to the word puppy for the woman. And then she responds with just a little bit of humor. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. To which Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. And the word Jesus uses for great faith is mega. You have like a mega mall, right? Like you have mega faith, woman. The disciples, the religious leaders, none of them got just how good the goodness of God was. But this woman from a despised class outclasses them all and shows how inaccurate their prejudices are. They thought they were her spiritual superiors. But Jesus makes the outcast the hero of the story. And to make her the hero in his culture would have been scandalous. And the end of the story is that the silence with which Jesus began is broken by his healing word, and her daughter's restored. So that's what's going on in this text. What does it mean for us? I think it means that Jesus heals everyone, but he heals us differently. He gives us what we need. And often, as he is with lepers or the prostitutes of his day, Jesus gives us a kind, and he gives us a gentle word. But sometimes when we need it, he gives us severe mercy. A coach who never pushes his or her players doesn't care about the players, right? A coach that cares about the players pushes the players, even if it hurts because it helps them grow. Like my new workout, I'm going to get huge. You're going to be in awe. And Jesus is giving us two workouts here, a love workout and a faith workout. And let me start with the first one. In this story, he is giving the disciples a love workout to expand their hearts. The bottom line of the story is that for the disciples, see guys, the grace of God is even for her who you despise. So for some of us right now, God may be challenging us with the love test. There's somebody in your life that you're having a hard time showing love to. Maybe it's a parent or a coworker, spouse, someone in the church. Maybe it's a whole group of people. And that's creating a lot of tension in your life and it's not good for you. I have some friends who live next door to a woman they described as the meanest person on earth. She'd say mean things to them, say mean things to their kids. If someone parked in front of her house, she'd come outside, get in her car, and honk the horn over and over and over again until they moved their car. And isn't it, you know, like every neighborhood seems to have one of those, right? Like every neighborhood seems to just have that grouchy person in just about every neighborhood. And and if you look around your neighborhood and you can't figure out who that is, well, (laughs) it's between you and the Lord. So they, they, you know, most of the time they just feuded, but eventually they decided to try to show her kindness. And occasionally they'd bake things, take them over to her, talk to her, they got to know her. One of the things they found out was she was raised in the home that they live in, was married in the bay window in their living room, and that some of her nastiness was simply just grief. She was a lonely widow, and all day she'd just sit and remember the things she'd lost, and their house represented all of that. Well, over the years years, relations got better between them, which was good for my friends because it eased all that tension. They weren't living with that all the time. They expanded their heart a little bit, 
And that's the first way that this story challenges us. A love workout to expand our hearts, to love people that maybe we're having a hard time loving. The grace of God is even for them. Second way Jesus shows a severe mercy in this story is he gives this woman and us a faith workout to expand our faith, which gives us more joy, help us experience more of his joy. You know, we live in a fast food culture and we kind of treat Jesus the same, at least I do. I want Jesus to fix my problems right now, make me happy right now, give me what I want right now. And then if he doesn't, sometimes we think, well, that means maybe he doesn't care or maybe he doesn't exist. But like a good coach who helps the athletes achieve their best by strengthening them, Jesus challenges our faith to grow. Now, Jesus doesn't cause hard things to happen, didn't cause this woman's daughter's suffering, right? An evil world did that. But Jesus can use those things to help us grow. The Bible says this, we also glory in our sufferings. Pause on that. We glory in our sufferings. That's like, man, that's one of the most anti-American things said in the Bible. Like, that goes so against our culture. Because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us. See, if Jesus just fixed everything instantly, we'd be vulnerable to the next time something goes wrong, right? No inner resources to draw on, and he'd have to keep fixing every little problem, and pretty soon we'd get weaker and weaker like a muscle that's never worked. But if he can produce in us the kind of character that generates hope no matter what, joy no matter what, a close connection with him no matter what, well, now we can get through all kinds of things. My kids this week were having a discussion about the difference between dystopia and utopia. And they said, so dystopia is when everything's awful, like in the Hunger Games, right? And I said, yeah. And then they said, so that must mean that utopia is when everything is perfect. And then my daughter said, which is in a way a kind of a dystopia. And I said, ooh, that's profound. See, that's what happens in pastors' families. Insights, right and left, right? Just like, you couldn't handle it. Right? Like, you would just be blown away. But think about it. Perfection is not all it's cracked up to be, right? Everything being you know, comfortable is not all it's cracked up to be. Here is the hard truth that Americans never want to face. In order to be fully human, in order to grow, we need to struggle a little bit. And that's what Jesus is doing with this woman. He's growing, using the hardship to grow her connection with him. Because faith is hanging in there, believing that Jesus is good in spite of our circumstances, even when he seems silent, that based on what we know about him, we can, we can trust that he is always for us. And that when he seems silent, it just means he's up to something that we cannot yet see. I have a friend who's a pastor in a small church, makes almost no money. And he and his wife can hardly pay their rent, and then their car broke. And then when you don't have any money, that is not a nuisance. That is a big deal. He needs that for transportation. I mean, that's a big deal when you don't have a lot of money. So he took the car into the shop, found out it was a transmission problem, super expensive. But, but turns out it was a problem in all, that, in all those models of cars. So the manufacturer had extended the warranty. But the warranty was about to run out. So he was able to get it fixed for free. But had it broken just a little bit later, he said he would have had to pay for the whole thing. His conclusion was God is always up to something, even if we can't see it at the time. So some of you maybe feel like this Canaanite woman might have. There's some issue you face, and God just seems silent. Based on what you know about Jesus, that he loved you enough to die for you, will you hang in there, trusting that he is good, and that he is up to something, even if you can't yet see it? He was up to something with this Canaanite woman, growing her, expanding her faith. And he eventually did heal her daughter, but the faith workout was also for her good, to give her a joy that is not tied to circumstances. 
but tied to Jesus. And that's our ultimate source of hope. Our hope is not based on some vague sense that it's all going to turn out okay at the end and there'll be bunnies and flowers and stuff like that. Our hope isn't certainly based in our own righteousness or in our own competence. It's in Jesus, the one who conquered death. And when Jesus says it's not right to give to the, ch- the children's food to the dogs, that's not so much a, uh, an insult as it is a theological statement. And this woman picks it up and she gets it. And she, her response basically says, I know I'm not worthy. I know my own goodness is not sufficient for an all-holy God. But I am not coming to you, Jesus, based on my goodness. I'm coming to you based on yours. I haven't earned anything. Don't give me what I deserve. Give me what I don't deserve based on your grace. She sees deep into the character of Jesus, fully revealed at the cross, where Jesus, the ultimate child of God, is tossed away like a dog from the table so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted. The child had to become a dog so that we dogs could become sons and daughters of the Most High King. And this is the heart of the gospel. That if we say, you know what, oh, I've got it all together, we don't have it all together. It's, it's when we admit our inability to save ourselves that we need Jesus, then we're saved. Jesus says, if you say you can see, if you think you've got it all together and don't need me, you're blind. But if you say you're blind and you need a Savior, well, now you can see. There's a man who goes to our church who ended up in jail And I was visiting him there, and he said, you know, Scott, whenever you'd be preaching, I'd always think, yeah, these people need to hear this. You know, especially that person right there. You just let them have it, Dudley. And then he smiled and looked around and said, but look where I am. I'm in jail. Right? Like, maybe I should start to listen. See, he's getting it. Right? I need a Savior. So right now, there may be circumstances in your life that Jesus is not causing but he's using them to reveal your need for him or some hidden evil in your heart. And the question is, how do we handle that? And if we say, I'm no dog. I deserve better than this. I deserve more than this. Well, then we're just kind of entitled Americans. But if we say, I don't deserve more, but please, based on your grace, give me what I don't deserve, that makes us faithful people. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around going, oh, I'm a worm. You know, I'm just terrible. That's pride, too as though our sin were greater than God's grace. Canaanite woman does not go to that extreme either. She says, yes, I can't do it on my own, but Lord, your grace is greater than my guilt, wider wider than my wanderings, and stronger than all my weaknesses. And you and you alone can heal my daughter. And that's what releases God's explosive healing in our lives. Got an email from a woman in our church about how she and her son, who I'll call Rick, really had a lot of tension during his 20s. And at one point, Rick totaled the car and got a DUI, and it was his second one. He had to go to treatment. He had to spend a little bit of time in jail. And she said, can you imagine the pain of dropping him off there? And then when he was released, he had to live with his parents, had to wear a monitoring device. But she said, I have seen God's blessing in this. She said, for starters, I couldn't stand the pain, so I had to give it up. And I remember visualizing placing Rick in Jesus' arms and just walking away. I'd tried everything to make the situation better. I had failed on all fronts. This was my only hope to heal the pain. See, she admitted, I can't can't do it, Jesus. You got to do it. And then after some time, she said, God gave me the peace that really does pass understanding. I now personally know what that verse is talking about. And this isn't just her changing her attitude. This is a supernatural peace that comes from God in hard times. She said the other blessing was that Rick didn't blame other people. He accepted responsibility, and that was a step of maturity for him. She said the other blessing was that Rick began to work through the issues surrounding his adoption and got to know his birth parents, and by developing those relationships, she said he returned to us as our son and began to appreciate our love 
and to love us back. Well, Rick is now in his 30s. He's got a job that he loves, so things are getting better. Their relationship is restored, but everything is still not perfect, right? He, he still doesn't have a driver's license, couldn't afford the insurance anyway. He quite possibly could be an alcoholic, and she said, someday we may have to do an intervention, but even then, I know that we will be guided by the Holy Spirit. The fact that both DUIs included totaled cars, but nobody was injured, she sees that as God's protection. And her son is still not a follower of Jesus, but she said, you know what? I know that that's God's business too. And so I pray for him and I love him and I just enjoy our newfound relationship. And I trust that God has his hand in Rick's life and is in working in ways I cannot yet see. And then she said this amazing thing. She said, this is the biggest blessing of my life. See, that's what Jesus can do. He can take stuff like that and make it a blessing. She said, it's so strengthened my faith and God has given me this incredible peace and is redeeming our son out of an awful circumstance and he's already repaired our relationship and giving me huge joy in that. If ever there was a person who wants control, I'm it. When all my ducks are in a row, I can navigate life quite well. But I've learned that life scatters the ducks, but God can bring his healing to any situation. What I like about this story is she's seen God at work, right? A restored relationship with her son. He's on a better path, right? And she's got a peace in difficult situations, but everything is not perfect. There are still places that she has to trust that Jesus is doing something that she cannot yet see. But that's strengthened her faith enough to where she can release control and have peace and trust God for the rest. God didn't cause all these things to happen. Her son made all those decisions on his own. But God used it as a faith workout, which ended in a peace that can't be taken away, a joy not tied to circumstances, a family that is on the mend, and a deeper connection to God. See, experiencing joy and peace is not a matter of having a storm-free life. It is a matter of having Jesus in the boat with you during the storm, knowing that he is good all the time, all the time he is good. So, How may Jesus be giving you some kind of a workout to expand your heart or expand your faith and your connection to him? And will you embrace it that way? Will you embrace it that way? And and will you do it and say, okay, Lord, let me cooperate with this workout so that you can expand me and expand my connection with you? And will you do what this Canaanite woman does, what real faith is all about, which is to say, Jesus, you and you alone can heal. You and you alone can give me joy. Only you can connect my heart to the heart of the Father. So it's everything I've got. Double down on you, Jesus. You are my plan A, and I do not have a plan B. Because my hope is anchored in something that does not disappoint. My hope is not built on my own righteousness. My hope is not built on my cleverness. My hope is not built on my achievements. My hope is not built on my 401K. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I'm not going to trust any other frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Jesus, the solid rock I stand. Jesus, who conquered death. Jesus, who calmed the storm. Jesus, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, friend. On Jesus, the solid rock I stand, because all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Jesus, thank you that you always meet us. Thank you that even when we can't see it, you are always up to something. Lord, for those of us in this room who are wondering where you are, why you're not responding, why you're not helping, Lord, give them an extra measure of faith like you gave this woman to hang on, trusting that you are for them. 
Lord, help all of us to follow you and know that you are always at work even when we can't see you. And Lord, we thank you for the cross which proves to us that you are good all the time and all the time you are good. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.